I did a Google search for mysteries. And I was surprised by how many of them I've never, ever heard of. But there were some that I was familiar with. Now, are there any, if, when I say mysteries, do you have a mystery that you comes to your mind immediately? Anyone have a mystery that comes to your mind immediately? Uh, a couple, three, just anyone? Mysteries? 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 Bermuda Triangle. Bermuda Triangle. It was on all the list. Yeah, b- 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 that triangle. It was on all the list. Yeah, I can't. Yes, John? Scooby-Doo. Thank you very much. <laughs> Don't let him talk anymore. <laughs> all right? Any more mysteries, Brian? JFK's assassination, that's right. You know, uh, you know, there was a few mysteries that were on there. One of them that I find amazing that there is no answer to. No one has ever solved this. And this particular mystery is, why can't the Eagles win a Super Bowl? <laughs> it was on every single list I looked at. It was amazing. Enough said. No, this is the first mystery This is the most important mystery of all. Chicken or the egg? Which one came first? Egg? Thank you. How many of you vote for egg? How many of you vote for chicken? Very, thank you very much. I don't know why you think that. Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. This is a very good one too. Um, What was Scar's name before he had his scar? Oh, you would know that. How does Phineas get a t-shirt on over that head? that happen? And it must happen every day. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Oh, I won't mention anyone that I know who does that a lot. All right. So um, what creative genius put an S in the word lisp? What torture? That is a mystery. All right. Here's a mystery that is a serious mystery. It's real that I'd never heard of before. And it's pretty crazy. It's called the Voynich Manuscript. Anyone heard of this before? I knew you would, Greg. I knew you would heard of this before. Greg Shipley, that's right. All right, this manuscript, you see how it's illustrated there in all the drawings? The, all the drawings throughout this manuscript are very detailed. There's, there's, there's drawings of people. There's drawings of constellations. There's drawings of, of like, um, medicine bottles. But the script, the language it's written in, is unknown to mankind and has never been able to be deciphered. They, through their study, they've found that it appears that it dates back to around the 1400s. It, its name comes after Vo- uh, Wilfred Voynich, uh, a Polish book dealer who purchased it in 1912 and kind of has, has had it in recent memory, and now it belongs to a museum up at Yale University, I believe. The illustrations have great detail to them, and, and there are plants and species of plants that it, it depicts that are not readily identifiable or known to people who know those things. Botanists. That, I hope that's the right word. Botanists. And there's constellations of drawings and women and people, and there's, and there's strange drawings to them, like people in pools with tubes that run to and from the pools. Ooh. 
and they don't know the language it's written in, and they can't figure it out. And there was books published even in the past few years about what this could possibly be. It is a mystery. But also, Proverbs chapter 30 speaks of a mystery. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, the writer says. Things that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a shepherd on a rock. The way of a ship in the middle of the sea. And the way of a man with a maid. Yeah, that's a mystery. But mystery is a word that's used in the Bible at least 29 times. 23 of those times, it's used in the New Testament. All right, more guessing games. This is right of Joe Caracapazzale. He loves this if you've ever been in a small group with him. What book of the Old Testament is the only book that uses the word mystery? Thank you very much, Rich Mears. Daniel. It's the only book in the Old Testament that uses the word, and you can imagine why, given all the dreams and the visions and the prophecy that the book has in it. All other times are in the New Testament, and of those, 20, and of those um, 29 times, uh, the 23 times it's used in the New Testament, Paul uses it 18 of those times. John uses it a lot in Revelation. It's used one time in Mark. That word occurs in our passage today. Open up your Bibles to Colossians 1. Verse 25 to 29. Because it, it appears right there. So I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bibles. I am going to have it on the screen for us right now. And I'm using the New American Standard version of the Bible. And so I'll have it up on the screen in that particular translation as well. So let's read it together here. All right, you don't have to read it. I'll read it to you, all right? Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, there's our word, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. There's that word mystery again out there. The hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul writes about this mystery has been hidden from past ages and generations. He says it's been revealed in verse 26. This ministry, this mystery has been hinted at since the very book of the Bible. Matter of fact, one could even say that it was hinted at in, in Genesis chapter 3 when after the fall, God is addressing man and woman and the serpent, the three players in this, in this drama that is unfolding in early Genesis. And there in that moment, he, he hints at this mystery there even as he is speaking about that the seed of the woman who is going to be Jesus, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He hints at it. You're like going... The seed will crush the head. What's all that about? Well, you can, and also in Genesis 17, where God speaks to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, you no longer should be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Nations. Now, he's already been called out, and he's been told that his seed will scatter the earth, be as numerous as the, as the, sea, the sand on the sea, as numerous as the sky, stars in the sky. And he's speaking about a great nation for Abraham. And then in, verse 17, or in chapter 17, he goes, 
but I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. He's hinting. He's looking forward. Isaiah and Zechariah all both have instances that they speak of this shadows and signs and hints about this this mystery. And now here in verse 27, we see this mystery revealed. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his ministry among the Gentiles, which is, what is the mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This great mystery that, that is that Christ has come down to dwell in mankind. Not just the Jewish nation, but Gentiles. Gentiles are anyone who is not Jewish. So now this mystery is that at one time, all of the Jewish nation, they understood that we are his select people. We are his chosen people. Matter of fact, in Amos 3.2, he says that there's many passages, but in Amos 3.2, he says like this, only you, or you only have I singled out of all the families of the earth. Only you, Israel, as my chosen. And now, Paul comes and he says, no, it's not just us anymore. It's everyone. It's everyone. This is a huge shift in theology and thinking. It's a huge shift in the very fabric of the Jewish culture. And so you can imagine how, how incredibly difficult it was to grasp the truth that God is no longer a God who is out there. God is no longer a God that I don't relate to daily, but I relate to priests who relate to him on my behalf, who are an intermediary who sacrifice on my behalf. And while I can pray to him, they are the ones who make that sacrificial atoning for my sin. And now you're telling me that he lives in me. And it's not just us as Jews, but to the entire world. Yeah, that's what he's telling you. He's saying this. He's saying that it is Christ lives in us. That is the mystery. That is the mystery. Flip in your Bible back to chapter 1, verse 15. And try and grasp the magnitude of this. I'm not reading the passage per se, but if you follow along with my notes on the screen, you'll see that I'm following right through chapter verse 15 all the way through verse 19. And so Christ lives in us. What does that mean? That Christ lives in you? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. And, and, and he is controlling. He is the controlling, cohesive force of the entire universe. By him, everything is held together. In him is the life source. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He is the fullness of God. And he will someday be the final judge. He will someday be the one who is victorious over all, over everything. He is the one who someday every knee shall bow. It is that Jesus that lives inside of us. It is that Jesus who lives inside us. It is hard to fathom what that means. It is hard to understand how that could be. It is absolutely a mystery of how that could happen. I would even go further and say this. When I look at my life, it's a mystery that he would be in me. Utterly astonishing. 
And yet, by faith, I believe it's true. And by the testimony of his actions in my life, I've seen it evident. But I do not understand it. I cannot explain it. It is a mystery. It is a mystery. So that mystery has been revealed to us in verse 26. It's been received by us in verse 27. And then in verse 28, we are to proclaim it. J.B. Phillips in his translation of the New Testament, he says verse 28 like this. So naturally, listen to that. To Paul, he's like going, so if all of that is true, if everything that about Jesus is true, if everything I just wrote to you in verses 15 through 25 or whatever it is, if all that is true, so yeah, naturally we talk about it. Naturally we proclaim it. Without a doubt, without a second thought, without discussing it, we proclaim it. We proclaim Christ. And we warn everyone we meet and we teach everyone we can all that we know about him so that if possible, we may bring every man up to his full maturity in Christ. What do we proclaim? Christ. We don't proclaim Christ in community church. I don't ever, I hope that you never feel compelled to have to invite anyone to Christ in community church. I hope that you feel compelled to invite them to hear about Jesus. We don't proclaim a denomination or a conference or a convention. We, we don't proclaim a theology. And yet, if you talk about Christ, theology could come out. But it's not that we are standing before you. I, 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 I get confused sometimes. I get, I don't understand sometimes. When you can take an identity in an identity of a, of a, of a denomination and then all of a sudden it becomes like the Baptist way of communion or the Reformed manner of, and I'm like going, it's about Jesus. And when we start putting our denomination names in front of Jesus, we've got things backwards. And when you start talking about crossing more than you talk about Jesus, you've got things backwards. It is him we proclaim. It is him we talk about. It is him who shapes us and makes us. It gives us energy and gives us life. It is him. It's not our theology. It's not our building. It's not our name. It's not our denomination. It's none of that stuff. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that gives us all of that. It is all of that. We proclaim him. We don't proclaim rules. We don't proclaim do's. We don't proclaim shouldas. We don't proclaim don'ts. We proclaim Jesus. And him alone. We don't proclaim the things we think he is against. Or the things we think he's for. We proclaim Jesus. And him alone. Because he is. So precious. Because he is so amazing. Because beyond our wildest imaginations. He is. He is just beyond. And there's only one way to proclaim him, and that is to everyone. You see in our passage, to everyone. The extent of the proclamation is to all, all men. Proclaiming, you see in our passage there, proclaiming there, where he's talking about it, 
We want everyone to know, everyone to teach. We want to proclaim. And what does he say we proclaim? We warn and we teach. There are two parts to proclamation, admonish or warn and to teach. Admonish or to warn and to teach. Well, a moment ago, I said that we don't preach the do's and the don'ts. We don't preach the rules. We don't want that to be what we're about. We don't want that to be what we're known for. But there is a warning that comes. And that warning, quite simply, is this. Is that mankind, apart from God, is doomed. That is the warning. And the teaching is that Jesus came to rescue mankind from himself. Jesus came to rescue mankind from his sin problem, to redeem mankind out of that, to draw mankind out of it, to reconcile mankind. That's what Paul just talked about in this earlier chapter, to reconcile mankind, to make peace with him between God and man. Jesus did that. The problem, the warning is, is that mankind is lost without God. And the teaching is, is that Jesus is the solution to that lostness. He is the destination that every man and woman and child needs to know about. And why did Paul proclaim, warn, or teach? Why does he do that? Well, we see again in our passage right here. So that, if possible, we may bring every man up to full maturity in Christ. So that we can present them as committed followers of Jesus. Our mission statement here at Cross and what we say we want to be about is to be and make committed followers of Jesus Christ. Our mission, what we say we want to be about, what we strive for, what we stumble through sometimes, what we trip over, what we mess up, what we do well at times, whatever case may be, but what we want to be about is that we want to make committed followers of Jesus Christ. It comes right out of Scripture. It comes right out of our text so that every man may be presented complete. Who we want to be as a church comes right out of the text. Right out of the pages of Scripture. It's exactly what Paul instructed us to do. And Paul, Paul thinks that this is really, really important. Paul thinks that this should be a consuming task. Look at your text, verse 29, right here, and read it in your Bible. And he says, and for this purpose, what purpose? To present every man complete in Christ to full maturity. For this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. One commentator has said this about unpacking the language there. He says that Paul's language in this verse is brutally compelling. The Greek word translated labor was used for work which left one so weary it was as if the person had been taking a beating. It denotes labor to exhaustion. Struggling, an even stronger word than labor, was the Greek word for which we derive the English word agony and was used for agonizing in an athletic event or in a fight. 
The words together describe the tremendous energy of Paul's, of, of Paul's apocalyptic, uh, apostolistic, aha, apostolist ministry. Here we go. Let's move on, right? Um, those are big words for a redneck from Texas. <laughs> um, and he finishes this. He says, he strained every physical and moral sinew to present every man complete in Christ. In other words, he put it all on the field. When you read about that, when you read about that, how does that shape one's life? How does that shape your schedule? How does that shape your leisure time? It is all consuming, isn't it? In my flesh, which I dabble in far too much, I'm always looking for time for me to do what I want, to be undisturbed, to not have someone be in the middle of it. And yet Christ, Paul, is calling us out of our comfort, is calling us out of our pleasure, is calling us out of what we like into the lives of others, always. Look at the text. And and this is really something important. The text does not say that he is straining in such a way where he is left alone. I, I, I don't know how to articulate other than to say the text says that he is compelling men and women into relationship because he says we're presenting every man into maturity. There is no way, I've said this before, there is no way for us to call ourselves Christians and say, I don't need the church. You just can't find it. You can't rationalize it from Scripture. Now you can say that the church doesn't do a good job. I agree. You can say the church is full of hypocrites. I know, you were there. You can say a lot of things about the church and they'd probably all be true. But it still is not a pass to not be participating in the local church. There is no pass to being involved with other people of faith. Because Paul, even in his own relationships with Timothy, um, we are called into relationship to be discipled, and to be discipling others. And we have people who would really love to be discipled. And we need some of us to step up into that opportunity in their lives. One man wrote about this passage, the the mystery is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took up residence in the minds and hearts of all those who believed in him for eternal life. Think about that. The mystery is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go 
to the Father. He didn't go and hide in the hills. He resided in the hearts and the minds of his people. Therefore, the challenge of loving, forgiving, reconciling, and caring is not our responsibility for Christ, but it is his through us. Now, did you catch that? Therefore, the challenge of loving. I can be difficult to love. I know it. I really understand that. It can be difficult to forgive. It can seem impossible to reconcile. Some of us make it a lot of work to care. But it is Jesus doing that through us that makes all those things happen. It is never because I love you enough that I'm going to care for you or that I'm going to reconcile with you or that I'm going to forgive you. It is that Jesus does that through us. And when he doesn't do that through us, when I find myself, um, when I find myself difficult to love you, difficult to care for you, difficult to reconcile with you, difficult to forgive you, the reason is not because Jesus is not at work in me. The reason is because I've not allowed him to be at work in me. I've not allowed him to be at work in me. I've said no to that. I've said I will not love her or him right now. It's not on my agenda. Well, Christ is not going to do that work unless you let him. And so if we have in our lives people that we cannot love, if we have people in our life that are difficult to care for, if we have in our lives people that it's hard to forgive or to reconcile to, it comes back to us because God and Jesus wants to do that through us. He goes on and says, we are channels through whom he moves to the estranged, the sick, and suffering world. We don't have to do it on our own. We are, we are to allow him to flow through our countenance, our touch, our words, our expressions, our compassionate acts, and, in, in, and our identification with Jesus. Paul's success was not due to his hard work or his credentials or to his wisdom. No, it was really due to the power of God working through him. The hope of glory is Christ in us. The pain of my heart the pain of the brokenness of my past, of my family's past, the pain of the brokenness that I've created in my family now, the pain of the brokenness that I've caused in my church family, in my relationships, all of that stuff, all of that, he wants to work through if I will let him. There is no hope for our world unless people can see it through you. Not someone else, but you. If you think that America is screwed up and going to hell in a handbasket, you're right. The answer lies in you. Not in Rubio. I know none of you think that about certain other candidates. Not any of those candidates up there. Not 11 of them up there. Not even if all of them were in the same cabinet together, they wouldn't make a government strong enough to change us. 
There's no hope in them. None at all. You still need to vote. But there's no hope in them. That hope lies in you. Yesterday, I was, took the boys, Betty went out to a luncheon, and she was gone, so I was responsible for breakfast, so we went out. <clears throat> <laughs> and so um, we went to the farmer's market. They have the best pancakes in the whole wide world. How many say amen? Thank you very much. I talk about Jesus, I get no amens. I talk about pancakes, you say amen. Where's your priorities, all right? So I understand. And so they come out with these pancakes. They're great. And there's two of them, and they're kind of fat, and there's two of them. And they put butter on there enough to kill a cow. And then they give you a big thing of syrup, and then you get there, and you get to eat all that. And it's like for $2.50, glory, I can feel the spirit coming on me now. And so, and we, and when I go with the boys, we like to sit at the little bar. There's only like five little stools at the bar there. And so, um, and so me and Owen and Grant were sitting there. And, and then next to me was a woman. And then next to her, one stool down was a guy. And somehow or another, they got into conversation. I don't know what it's about exactly. But then um, they got to talking about the debate. And then they got to talking about how... They weren't happy with any of them. And then they got into Wall Street, and they were hitting a lot of stuff. And then I finally thought, well, this is what you do at the coffee bar. You talk. And so I chimed in. And I said, well, you know, I understand what you mean about Wall Street. I know what it was. They said, they said that, um, that capitalism, the profit motive, was a bad thing. It was a bad thing. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right if there's no moral center. If there's no moral basis for how to check that profit margin, then you're absolutely right. And then I stopped. I didn't go any further with it, and I regretted it the rest of the day. The hope of glory is that the hope for capitalism is that mankind has Jesus living in them and they understand that profit is not all for them, it's for everyone. They understand that they're responsible for the lives of other people and not just for their bottom line. If you want to fix the nation, wait a minute, let's not even go to the nation. If you want to fix Bristol Township, Middletown Township, Newtown Township? The answer lies in you. In you. In you. That is the hope of glory. It's not in how you cast your vote. It's not in what I preach. It's not in what I do. It is you. Each and every one of us, as we step forward, And we let him love through us those who are impossible to love. As we let him step through us and forgive those that are unforgivable, as we let him live through us and love those who are absolutely unlovable. The world doesn't understand that. And the only answer is Jesus. The only answer is Jesus working through the hearts and the lives of his people. 
If you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus, we invite you to do that today. Take a break from trying to save yourself and allow Jesus to do that for you. It's really, really very simple. Realize that all your good works and your effort, your education, your smarts, all your opinions, all the things you've ever done, all the things you ever will do are not enough and never will be enough to pay the debt for your sin. And realize that left to yourself, we are consumed with our own good, our own reputation, our own pride, our own welfare. Confess that to God and ask him to forgive you. And realize that long before you were ever even born, God had a plan and a solution to your sin problem. And God sent his only son to die so that you can have eternal life. I hope if you've never done that before, you'll do that today. You can do it simply by talking to him in your own words. You don't have to say a script. You don't have to do anything. You just have to tell him you know you need him. And ask him to forgive you and take his forgiveness as your own. Let's close with a word of prayer and then Paul will come up and close us with a final song.